Hello, I'm Nick Cater, head chef at the Mendes Research Centre, and this organically grown, locally sourced, flame-grilled, intellectually nourishing dish you're about to taste is called the water cooler. Well, I hope, I hope you don't think that that uh, introduction was a bit maybe overcooked. But anyway, here we are. Here we are. And I'm here with, with the sous chef from the Menzies Research Centre, Fred Paul. Welcome, Fred. Oh, uh, yeah. G'day, Nick. Yeah, well, uh, it's a pretty suitable analogy. It's been pretty hot in the MRC kitchen this week. <laughs> Hopefully neither of us will come over all Gordon Ramsay uh, if, uh, if something Look, goes I, wrong. I really think it's one of those metaphors that's best left there. We don't want to yeah. carry <laughs> all the way okay. through. But, uh, yep. Look, and today we've, we've got some interesting questions to answer, Fred. Uh, why did Goulburn term blue and I'm not talking about the weather are we getting the sort of classical education that Robert Menzies promised uh there's an interesting question we'll have David first Robert something later I think to speak on that one yep uh, well uh, I mean um Menzies was pre- pretty uh focused on the idea of a classical education as distinct from a utilitarian one and David's got a lot to say about that yeah yeah, but, but starting with Menzies, I, I'm interested. Uh, he, he said once, I do not believe we're coming to an overlordship of an all-powerful state where we shall all be civil servants and presumably, since we'll be equal, we'll all be heads of department. I, I, when I looked at the Queensland budget this week, I, I thought maybe he got that one wrong. So uh, we, we, we've got um, Campbell Newman on the line, former esteemed Premier of uh, Queensland. Well, welcome, Campbell. So, fellas, thanks for having me. And uh, I must say, the the Queensland electorate redeemed themselves, I think, for the huge mistake they made in uh, in uh, voting you out of office uh, a few weeks ago. And I congratulate them for that. I think they've they've made up. I just about made up for their mistake last time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Uh, Well, maybe they finally started to realise that uh, Labor are just serving up, uh, um, you know, a a concoction of nonsense to them. And uh, people have worked out that actually the Labor Party are not for. Uh, blue collar men and women anymore. Uh, they're not for the people in the high vis vests. They're, they're not for coal miners and people who support the coal mining industry. They're for, for inner city uh, elitists. And I think that came through loud and clear in the, in the federal election. And what's even more fascinating, fellas, is that since the election, uh, I think Albanese and uh, his front bench uh, you know, uh, opposition team are still showing that they're not really listening. He's going on a listening tour, but, but it's not really, I think, penetrating their grey matter what uh, the problem is for the Labor Party. I've, I'm on a listening tour. Come and listen to me. That seems to be his approach. <laughs> That's about right, yeah. Has, has the attitude changed as thoroughly as we are being told? Well, look, I don't, I don't think they've changed their attitude, really. Um, surely it should be easily for the Labor Party to have a vote where they have a unanimous resolution that the Labor Party support the export of coal from uh, Australia, both thermal and coking coal. At that point, then I would believe them that they've actually got the message. Until they do that, they can't be trusted when it comes to coal. And even today in the Australian newspaper, by the way, there's quite an interesting article about uh, the BP uh, International uh, Energy Outlook report, which is a very well-respected report, which is basically say, saying that coal consumption is now going through the roof and the demand is increasing. And you then contrast that with Labor luminaries, even like our state Prem, uh, Deputy Premier Jackie Trad, who said only in recent weeks that coal was you know, yesterday's uh, fuel and that coal miners should retrain. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, they, they seemed to be though on Monday morning. It was as if the election acted as a sort of cattle prod for the, uh, the Queensland government. They were out there trying to get things done. It was almost like a complete U-turn. I thought. Well, yeah, I think they finally got the message that the electorate um, have a different view, and they're again spending too. They, the Labor Party, spending too much time talking to people uh, in you know the corridors of power or in uh, sort of coffee shops and restaurants in the inner five Ks of the city of Brisbane. Um, and now they're scrambling. Uh, the, the challenge is that the state LNP uh, need to press home that issue on and on and on and ensure that Labor are held to account because one of the things that I'm afraid that the state LNP have not done over the last uh, four and a half years since uh, my government was voted out is actually get behind the coal industry particularly firmly. They are now, but I think they didn't have the courage to do it. Uh, you know, they, they really could have done a lot more and they could have won seats in Townsville uh, in the last state election in 2017 if they'd been prepared to be far more supportive of Adani. But they were too scared by what might happen in the city of Brisbane. And then I say, well, we've just had that federal campaign. Uh, in this case, the, the coalition federally were prepared to support Adani and support coal. And the, the example I give you is the inner city seat of Brisbane held by Trevor Evans of the coalition, uh, he, he did very well in the election just passed, even though coal was part of the narrative of that election campaign here in Queensland. So that's what the LNP could have done in 2017 at the state election. Yeah, I think Trevor's a, a brilliant uh, politician to be able to hold that seat as he has. I mean, in any other state, that we'd have lost that one a long time ago, I think. Well, he's done well, and he he's sort of been able to, uh, you know, point out some of the you know, the, the small government and uh, more traditional liberal values of the party. But again, uh, the, the conventional narrative might have been that he would do it tough in an environment where we were really talking to the regions about the coal industry and those resource uh, sector jobs. But he prevailed, which was you know, really good news. And, and, and sort of conservatives should look at that and take heart. Yeah, Cam I, th I think you're right. Red? Campbell, um, Jackie Tran's uh, budget has been uh, widely uh, criticised. There's been so, there are there are aspects of it that are um, that are still quite uh, extravagant. Uh, anything in it that you saw that that uh, should have been cut? Well, I think it's an appalling budget, um, and there are very, there are many sort of metrics that you can look at. But just to step back and look at it from a, a global perspective, you know the states. Revenue now for the for the budget is over sixty billion dollars a year. Just a few short years ago, when I was the premier, uh, we had a revenue uh, uh, overall of about forty eight billion. So in just a few short years, we've gone from forty eight billion to sixty billion, and they still are seeing the debt continue to escalate because they have no plan. And talking to people I know in the resources sector, they say that the assumptions about ongoing high coal prices are frankly heroic. I mean, we've got a faltering global economy. We've got a trade war between America and China. China are the ones whose demand supports those coal prices. And, you know, what could happen very easily to this state is that coal prices do take a dive again sometime in the financial year, and they will not receive those royalties. That's one big problem. Another issue is their heroic assumptions about keeping costs under control. So they've uh, said that they would uh, be able to keep the, the cost increases 
to one and a half percent their expenses. But the the history of the last uh, four and a half years while they've been in government has been over seven percent, indeed eight percent. Well, yeah. you then start looking at some other aspects to it. I mean, if I just dive into one, what's what they're doing on LNG? So without any warning, capriciously, unilaterally, they are hiking LNG royalties quite considerably, and the whole industry has erupted on that. And and the problem with that is that it will absolutely deter future investment decisions at a time when, frankly, regional economies need to be boosted uh, in Queensland. And we've got these massive LNG plants at Gladstone that need to be fed with gas, new sources of gas. And here's the big issue. You've then got a treasurer who, uh, it's reported again in the, in the news today, didn't realise that it would apply to domestic gas as well. I mean, it is just blatant incompetence and it reminds me so much of Anastasia Palaszczuk in the 2015 election campaign uh, against yours truly who was let off the hook by the mainstream media who didn't know what the rate of GST was in this country I mean can you believe it it's amazing Campbell it's like it's like they want to really strangle business in the state I mean you can see up and down the east coast in New South Wales in Victoria businesses struggling some going to the wall because of the price of gas now, why would you voluntarily put up the price at a time when we've got constrained supply around the country and businesses crying out for relief on this? Not just business, but, you know, milk processors, anybody. Well, it's a, it's a left-wing government. It, the left of the Labor Party now control, uh, they control this government. Um, you know, if you go back to sort of BD days, it was, it was more the, the AWU and, and the sort of the, the sensible people held the whip, whip hand, if I can say that. Uh, and now we've just got these these absolutely nutball policies. Again, I go back to what I said earlier, Trad, only a, a few weeks ago, really, certainly this year, said that coal miners needed to retrain, that that uh, you know coal mining would be phased out. I mean, it's a nonsense. It it is ignorant. It it completely overlooks what's actually happening globally. So ideology drives this government not practical, sensible considerations, not the needs of Queenslanders. And they think that employment is about what government does. It is not. Employment is about what the private sector does, about the the industry of small, medium enterprises and ultimately big corporations that actually do create economic growth and opportunity for, for Australians. And the best thing that government can do is keep taxes low, regulation to a minimum and get out of people's way. Let's just move on to how they're dealing with the public service. Now, I remember coming up and chatting to you. It would have been, I think, January 2014. And uh, it was about the time that the Gillard government had been handing out lots of uh, money um, for education. And I remember you saying to me, you really didn't need any because you couldn't actually see what you could do with more funding to improve the quality of Queensland schools. There were other matters. But it just seems to me that Labor always has this approach that the way to fix any problem is to increase the size of the public service. And that's what they're doing right now, right? Well, well, sadly, I suppose it starts with the community who seem to have bought a line, and I'm afraid even the coalition you know, are in this trap these days, um, that more money equals better outcomes. You know, look, I've been in business for you know, half my working life, and that's complete rubbish. Um, if that was the case, then uh, a colour TV set today wouldn't cost, you know, 
eight or nine hundred dollars, it would cost five thousand um, dollars. Point I'm making is that you know enterprise that's competitive and uh, focused on customers constantly looks at ways it can improve its offering um, and keep prices down and and in fact you know lower prices. And that's what the public sector should be doing, and it can do that. Uh, pumping more money into the public service, either at state or federal level, is a, is a nonsense, and it, it it just it just actually rewards inefficiency. You know, we'll be talking about education. Um, I don't see that more money directly in our schools is actually going to achieve a whole lot more. There are statistics in the United States going back over 40 years where they pumped per capita funding up, up and up and up, and the outcomes uh, didn't improve in the United States. And does that sound familiar in Australia? Uh, in health, um, we were um, we were sort of given a lot of trouble uh, at the time when we were trying to put doctors on contracts because we were demanding performance. Uh, the unionised doctors workforce in the, in, in, in the Queensland public health system, you know, fought a pretty hard battle. Uh, because they didn't like being held accountable. Uh, we had uh, uncovered warts, uh, feather bedding, people literally clocking on. These are doctors clocking on and then going and playing golf and their friends covering up for them. And that's why they didn't like going on contracts. So you pump more money in, but you don't hold people to account. You get bad outcomes. Yeah. So this government has pumped up uh, the tyres of the public service. Money's no object. So um, we're now seeing, uh, and there's some stats in the Australian newspaper today, um, the highest expenditure uh, per head of population on the employees of the public service of any Australian state. It's now $5,590 a year per Queenslander spent on the public service. So you, of course, tried to do something about this, and many of us were really in admiration for what you do because very few state leaders take on that task. I think Stephen Marshall is beginning to do so now in South Australia, but that's the exception, isn't it, rather than the rule. Why is that? Why why are premiers, and I'm not just talking about Labor premiers here, because, um, you know, if, if you look at the West Australian government, the recent coalition government over there, they had a record of putting on a large number of public servants at very high salaries. So why does this happen? Why, why can't you as premier just say, well, we're going, to, we're going to treat this like a business. We're going to go through the trimming process. It'll actually make this stronger in the long run. It's hard, it's hard to let go, people go, but you'll find voluntary retirements and one thing or another, and in the end you'll come out with a, with a much more efficient and, and more, more pleasant place to work. Why can't you do that? Well, I think you can, but I think you've probably got to do it better than we did it. That's, uh, that's almost uh, axiomatic in terms of the result that occurred. But um, I, I think it's like this, that, you can make the case to Australians that you know, a bigger public service doesn't necessarily mean a better outcome for them um, in terms of health and education particularly. And we did cut the public service. We cut 14,000 jobs. But as I always say, uh, the ambulances always turned up uh, for people who needed them. The hospital performance improved. And since the Labor Party have been in and pumped more money into the system, the outcomes have gone backwards. Ambulance ramping has started again at our hospitals. So more money is not the answer. Efficiency, a focus on performance and making public servants in senior levels uh, deliver outcomes down the chain through their through their organisations is what it's all about. Um, so with, with Anna Bly, um, I think it was about 47% 
of uh, the, the state's uh, expenses, you know, went to employees. Uh, with me, it was about 43.8, uh, and then it's jumped up to 48% again under Labor. The trouble, though, and, and here, here's the challenge, again, to, to reflect on the last four and a half years, the LNP uh, at state level have sort of run away from their record. Uh, they haven't talked nearly enough about the fact that performance outcomes improved. And so then when you've seen, say, the Longman by-election going back uh, prior to this previous federal election, you saw the Labor hitting uh, the coalition hard about the Newman cuts. Well, if the LNP had shown some resolve and continued to talk about what had happened and talk to the actual statistics, they'd have been able to demonstrate that uh, performance had improved at that hospital, at the Caboolture Hospital and the Longman Electric. So uh, I guess I'm having a bit of a shot about the need for the coalition to be true to their values, to be true to what they stand for, and continue to talk about uh, the, the way that they would better run this state. Thanks, Campbell, and thanks for that uh, that rallying call. And thank you for everything you did as Queensland Premier, and we look forward to seeing you in your regular appearances on Sky News. Yeah, well, look, thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. And, and, and again, I think it's, um, you know, there there. People shouldn't lose hope about undertaking reform. Um, I totally accept that you could do it better than, than uh, I did it with my team. Um, but uh, people shouldn't think that uh, the public won't listen to an argument for the need uh, for reform and that you can, government can deliver uh, more for them and not cost them a whole lot more. Thanks, Campbell. Thanks for your time. And we'll catch up with you again soon. Fred, it seems like everything they could do wrong, they are doing wrong. I think it, it comes back to the question you asked a minute ago of Campbell, and that is, what do these people actually stand for? Other than power for its own sake, why are these Labor politicians actually in office? And, uh, I mean, Campbell kind of alluded to it when he, when he described the way they operate as based on the idea that money is no object. They are the four most frightening <laughs> words when they are describing uh, politicians. Yeah, and because we'll be looking at this at uh, the Menzies Research Centre on our next policy program, we want to look at the ease of doing business from state to state and draw up a league table And uh, because the states should be competing, shouldn't they, for business? That's the idea of the Federation, that they should be competing. and they, you know. well, what, what puzzles me, continually puzzles me about uh, Queensland, because this happens quite often, uh, they make, uh, the electorate makes one decision at a state election for a, a very, very uh, left-wing socialist Labor government, and then comes storming back in the federal government right behind a you know solidly liberal team under Scott Morrison. I don't make it. I think that that gap is getting even wider. Let me. I've had to tell you uh, some of the figures that I've been looking at from this recent ele- election campaign. So in uh, in let's take Canberra for instance, the Liberal National Party two party vote in Canberra was less than forty percent. Right, less than four in ten people voted. Uh, for Liberal Nationals, 38.39 to be precise. In Queensland, for it, the LNP vote was 58.44. So 20 percentage points he- here or there between the two places, uh, which I find is remarkable. We always knew that Queensland's different, that we do have variation in voting patterns between the states, but it seems to me without having looked at it um, fully yet, that the, it's possible that the gap 
in this election was wider than ever before, which would fit the idea that we're in a much more polarised society. Well, Queensland has this reputation of being, you know, the equivalent of Texas, almost the Lone Star State. But it wasn't an outlier during the same-sex marriage debate. You know, Queenslanders are as contemporary as the rest of Australia. It's just that every now and again they throw a, co- a curveball at us and, I, you know, I, uh, I'm happy to, uh, happy to uh, opine that uh, in 2019 they pretty much saved Australia's bacon they because do. without Queensland we would uh, be looking at a shortened government. We're all four ex-drinkers now, Fred. We're That's right. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'll just go through the rest of those figures, actually, because they're quite interesting. So uh, if I can get them in order. So Queensland, this is the Liberal National Party two-party vote in each state. In, in Queensland, 58.44, right, near enough 60 in, in round terms. Uh, next, we can guess probably, you could probably guess at that one. Is New South Wales. No, Western Australia. WA at 55.55. Then New South Wales, I think a respectable third at 51.22, not so far off the national swing. And then we get into recalcitrant territory. (laughs) (laughs) The handout states. Careful. (laughs) I think think the internet means they can hear this all around. (laughs) So you better be careful. The wonderful wonderful state of South Australia with a, a terrific premier... South Australia, 49.29, so just below 50, which is a reduction on last election. Uh, Then where do we go? Tasmania? Uh, No, Victoria comes in ahead of Tasmania, 46.54. But here's the one that surprised me, Tasmania, 44.04. That's much lower than I imagined it would be, I think, because it seems to be a a polarised island in some way, that you had um, good swings to the uh, Liberal and national parties, not the nationals count for much, but the Liberal Party at least, uh, in the two northern electorates, Braddon and Bass. Yep. And then I think I'd have to have a look at it, but I think there's swings against uh, the coalition in some of the southern ones. But there's, either way, there's a clear polarisation there, which I think has always been a feature of Tasmanian politics. We should, we should reproach the Tasmanians... Yes. Gracefully and say, I, I'm sorry, you, you make some lovely beers down there, but yeah. we're not going to be drinking them. We're Forex people here at the Menzies Research Centre. <laughs> I can feel the Forex coming on. Got the taste for it. Just can't wait for it. I can feel a Forex coming on. You're listening to the Water Cooler podcast with uh, me, Nick Cater. Just to continue that discussion uh, we were having before about the what some are calling the great political disruption. This is a phenomena whereby seats that used to be Labour are moving towards the coalition and the other way around. Now, this is a global phenomena. In 2004, there was a very interesting book came out in the states called "What Happened to What's Happened to Kansas," and it was asking the question about why this solidly um, working class uh, Democrat seat was suddenly moving over to to the Republicans. Uh, with me on the line from Canberra is, is James Matthias. James, hello, how are you? Good, Nick, how are you? E- excellent. Uh, we've been having a look at this, haven't we? I think in particular relation, to, we, we, we thought after this election, this trend's been going on for a while, let's pick somewhere where we might see this in real action in real time. So we've looked at Goulburn or the, or the area around Goulburn, in the seat of Hume, which is held by Angus Taylor with quite a comfortable majority. Uh, but Goulburn, of course, is a fairly working-class uh, town, isn't it? It always has been a, um, a Labour stronghold, the town itself. That's right. And uh, 
at the last election, you can see that the Labor Party actually lost about 5.5% in the area around Goulburn. So it goes to show that the, uh, as the demographics change, uh, places like Goulburn that used to be rusted on Labor areas are starting to shift um, behind the Liberal Party, which is uh, in line with a commentary that says that the Labor Party actually don't represent uh, working class uh, aspirational people anymore. So we just pulled up the figures here for, for Goulburn from the ABS, and it is, it's got all the signs of being a pretty working class town, isn't it? it very, uh, it's about half the percentage of graduates as there are in other parts, higher percentage of trade certificates, quite a high percentage, about a third of people in, in the, in the Goulburn uh, township, if you like. Uh, about a third of them didn't complete year 12 or only completed year 12, didn't have higher education at all. So in, that's, all those are higher than the state average. Um, well, that's right. And uh, if you go beyond that for the entire electorate of Hume, uh, you have a look at uh, the breakdown of the highest level of education. And if you look at a certificate level three, say a tradesperson or a, an apprentice, uh, 19% odds in, in the electorate of Hume uh, have a certificate three, whereas the national average is about 15%. So you're looking at a, uh, a 30, 40% increase on what the uh, national average is. So and then in the same respect, when, when you look at, uh, say, bachelor level um, degree, uh, in, in the electorate of Hume, it's only about 14% compared to 22% for the entire, uh, entire Australia. So have you had a chance to look at that in historical terms? So what, what, how those booths in Goulburn and those other centres used to vote and how they vote now. Can you see a change over, say, the last 12 years? You can, you can certainly see a change uh, since 2010. Um, in 2010, the Labor Party in, in the booth of Goulburn uh, received 719 votes, which at that election was 5% down. At the 2019 election, the Labor Party only received 444 votes. So within the space of less than a decade, the vote for the Labor Party has just about halved. Working, yeah, and working people are showing that they don't like Bill Shorten. Do you remember that instant in the campaign where he, he went to shake the hand of, I think it was a bus driver, uh, on the edge of the port of Brisbane, and the, and the guy wouldn't shake his hand? And that was the moment I thought, yeah, this, we are seeing now why uh, Labor is struggling with working-class people, the Workers' Party. And uh, I can't see that trend reversing, can you? I mean, if you look at Melbourne, say you know Melbourne very well, you stood for the seat of Holt there. How are you seeing this work out in Melbourne? We'll use the seat of Holt as an example. I was the uh, candidate for the seat of Holt in the 2016 election. And there are a few key issues there that I had a look at that uh, were increasingly becoming apparent to me that it was the Liberal Party that, though at the time, I, I, I will admit, I thought that uh, the electors weren't, weren't seeing it as crystal as I did, but You've got issues like uh, negative gearing. So one in 10 voters, registered voters in the seat of Holt, uh, had a negatively geared property. And nobody could go to that seat or look at the statistics and accuse any of that one in that area of being wealthy, of being somebody that's exploiting the system. You know, these are everyday Australians that use negative gearing as a vehicle to get ahead so that you can have a family holiday, say, once a year or uh, have a nest egg for the future to rely on. But there are other critical uh, pieces of the puzzle that uh, say in the seat of Holt. 
80% of employed people out there have to travel outside of the electorate each day to get to work. Uh, and when you put that in the context of somebody who's trying to create more jobs and more jobs locally, or sorry, a party that's doing that, it's the Liberal Party. You know, the Liberal Party is backing people who negatively gear. Uh, other areas that come out to the seat of Holt are more become state-based, like crime. I remember when I was running the seat of Holt in the first two years of the Labor government under Daniel Andrews, crime in Cranbourne had jumped 21%. So areas like that, as we move towards the next election, you would naturally see, I think, that people who recognise the, uh, the experience of aspiration, negatively gearing, that's, that's not a reward, that's something that you can do you and your family to get ahead, you know, wanting to feel safe in the community, in the neighbourhood, but also having investments in infrastructure like duplicating the Cranbourne line or as the um, 2016 election commitment to widen the Monash of $1 billion, which has now been delivered. Um, the Liberal Party, I think, speaks more towards uh, those people. And you can see that in the results in the seats like Latrobe with Jason Wood. People like Get Up and especially the unions throw a lot at that seat every year. And yet Jason Wood has been able to consolidate that and turn that into a swing in both the 2016 and again in this election, making that seat harder and harder to get for the Labor Party. And it's because of decisions like this. Yeah, it's important to note, isn't it, James? Because, you know, if you look at the overall uh, Liberal national vote in, in, uh, in Victoria, it was down. Uh, down more than in some of the other states, but we're seeing swings towards the Liberal National Party on that sort of donut range of seats. Once you get rid of those closest to the city, if you start looking at Deakin, say, um, you know, up there on the edge of the That's Bible right. Belt, which you, uh, used to be a very hard seat for us, but Michael Suka held on to that one reasonably comfortable, didn't he? That's right. But, uh, it's actually not a scattergun approach. There's quite a logical reason to why certain seats are starting to swing behind the Liberal Party. And it's a bit of what we've lightly touched on today. It's about the demographics, the age breakdown of the electorate, the educational, highest level of educational attainment, um, average wages. And so what you can actually do is track this um, between censuses, like between the 2011 census, 2016 census, all the data sets are the same. And then when you apply that across the electorates broken down booth by booth, uh, as, as we're beginning to look at at the Menzies Research Centre, there is a scientific approach behind it. And by doing that, we're able to see where you can in, invest the infrastructure in the future to be able to uh, accurately predict what seats, what booths will start to swing towards us over the next decade. Terrific, James. Well, thanks very much for that. And I think this is a very fruitful area of research that uh, we're certainly, I think, going to invest a fair bit in in the, in the next year or so. Well, Fred, there's been a bit of chatter around this week about centre-right think tanks and how, uh, how uh, useful they are, really, how much work they do. Uh, I was quite surprised because I thought it was quite obvious we'd been doing a lot of work. <laughs> The author of the uh, the author of that piece, I think, was living under the proverbial rock, mate. Because I, I like you, I came from newspapers, uh, where you know the daily output is expected to be quite high, and I've never worked so hard in my life, and I've never been 
in an organisation that is as prolific and influential and productive as this one. Yeah, so I, I put a letter in the Fin Review this morning to answer it and I said, pointed out we'd done 14 research reports in the last uh, two and a bit years. But well, 15 including the one I couldn't read. <laughs> yeah, the one in Chinese. <laughs> That's the first. Isn't that's, the fir- that's the first output I didn't sub-edit. <laughs> <laughs> that's why there were so many typos. <laughs> but look, I mean, it, the, the fact is we, are, we, we do an awful lot of work. It's not just the policy work, it's then the advocacy and, and the filtering through to the public debate. Uh, so I thought we'd, get, we'd call, uh, why don't I pick up the phone, we might call our old mate uh, John Roscombe, who when it comes to think tanks is my mentor. He's been doing this job far longer than I have. He's the, he's the doyen of the caper. He is the doyen. Let's see if he's on the line. How are you? Oh, good day, John. It's Nick here, and I've got Fred Fred Paul as well with me on this uh, podcast. Awesome. I'm, now, how is how is that sound for you? I'm all ready to go, if that suits you. It's good enough. It's good enough for us. I mean, you're, you're in... You're not. If you're in Australia, we'd expect better quality, but because you're in Victoria, which is quite... <laughs> overseas call, Pe- I think. People's Socialist Republic in Victoria, exactly. <laughs> yeah, keep peddling, John. John, as you know, exactly. we, we, we've been chatting exactly. over, the last, over the last 24 hours or so about this, this claim that uh, centre-right think tanks aren't doing enough policy research and aren't effective enough. I mean, that completely puzzles me. And, and you too. I mean, you guys are just churning out the material. You've got, I think... I'm not allowed to break this news, record membership and, and you, you know, people are getting behind the people like the IPA, CIS and, and the Menzies Research Centre these days because they see the need, don't they, for good policy and good argument. No, Nick, I couldn't agree more. I think what is happening is there's a growing public appetite for a debate about the meaning of liberalism, about the meaning of free markets and prosperity and the policies to put that into place. I think you have a phenomenon of Brexit, of Trump, of to a greater or lesser extent what happened in our federal election. And that hasn't given rise just to a debate about our culture and our values and our principles, which I think is so important, but also what then are the practical policy implications of that and we see that in the work for example that the Menzies Research Centre has been doing on tax for a number of years, the Shepherd Review that you did which I think changed a large part of the debate around tax and federalism, the work that you did to highlight a brilliant analysis of Brian Fisher uh, on the cost of Labor's climate change policies. And what was significant about what the MRC did in that engaging in the public debate in the way it did and undertaking rigorous analysis is that it went to the question not just of climate change policy or energy, but to the future of Australia as a manufacturing country, to our jobs, to our prosperity, to our economic well-being. And I think one of the things that is, is so exciting uh, amongst all of us in the um, centre-right policy space engaged in the battle of ideas and the battle of policy is that the, the public and the politicians are up for these big ideas and they are up for big policy. And I don't mean that in the way that Paul Keating used to do. Uh, I mean it in terms of practical, engaged policy ideas that shift the dial, that change the debate and can ultimately be be implemented. John, one of the things implicit in that critique of, of centre-right think tanks in the Fin Review the other day 
Well, it, it seemed to be thinking that uh, us web us um, uh, think tanks are sitting around trying to adhere to some sort of uh, manifesto. But the the really good thing about think tanks is that they are small and nimble enough to respond to whatever they see as crucial at the time. In your case, you've embarked on a really uh, effective campaign to to encourage conservatism and centre-right uh, debate in universities. How's that going? It's going really well. I mean, what is so interesting is that young people are so optimistic about the future. And Fred, I think you put your finger on it, which is um, one of the things that I don't think enough people um, appreciate about uh, what we do here in Australia is that um, the nature of Australia is that inevitably uh, there will be a mixture of libertarian thinking, of classical liberal thinking, of conservative thinking, of you know sometimes a bit of anarcho-capitalism. Now, that doesn't lend itself to a manifesto, and nor should it. It lends itself, first of all, to a debate and discussion about ideas, and then a debate about policy, uh, and then from the debate and about ideas and policy, then comes to exactly, as you've, as you've said, our work on generation liberty and our work with young people on campus. That connects to not just telling people about the great ideas and the great books and about freedom and about human prosperity and what capitalism has done to move hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, but then it leads to policy ideas. So it leads to uh, an encouragement of the federal government undertaking the French review into freedom of speech on campus, which is really important. It comes to uh, a discussion about how uh, our universities are increasingly uniform and not diverse. It comes to a question of um, what our universities are not just teaching, but the research they undertake. So it flows through everything that we're doing. And I think one of the things that uh, sometimes uh, people uh, cannot be cognizant of is that because we are ubiquitous, um, because all of us say things that need to be said and are not always in the public debate, but sometimes our, our commentary um, drives out our analysis, even though it doesn't because we maintain, and we must maintain as, as research organisations, uh, under under the law, uh, quality analysis, quality research, and then communication about it. And one of the things that I find really so frustrating sometimes is when people say, you know, the MRC or the CIS or the IPA is in the media all the time. Well, yes, because the world is not now doing a 100-page report that sits on a desk of a bureaucrat. The world is now communicate is about communicating our ideas, and if we're passionate about our policies and if we're passionate to identify, for example, what Labor's policies would do on franking credits, which the MRC highlighted so brilliantly, we have to communicate it. And the idea that think tanks should simply be writing big reports and we stay in our cubby holes and we don't tell Australians about what we do and why we do it, and if we don't communicate to politicians and to the public servants, and to the media, and to the public, and to young people, and to opinion leaders, then we're not we're not doing our job. And 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 strong, active, eloquent communication goes hand in hand with high quality, outstanding research. Yeah, you're right, John. They're, they're actually inseparable, aren't they? I mean, and 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 that's what makes us different 
from the universities. The universities sit in ivory towers and write obscure reports. We can't do that. And, and I think, I don't know how you feel about this, but one of the reasons, one of the great imperatives for me to make the policy relevant, make it really cut through in the public debate and change arguments, is the fact that I have to answer to the good people who support us, you know, most of whom, many private donors, uh, a handful of corporates, uh, and, and they're not giving to us just for the love of it. They, they want us to make a difference. And I think that forces you, doesn't it? It gives you every day you think, well, what can I do to get this policy line out there? We can argue this. How can we win this argument? Rather exactly. Than- and we must be relevant. We must be relevant and we must be engaged. And sometimes the time frame for policy change, as we know, is a few hours or days or weeks. Sometimes it's months. Sometimes it's decades. Um, but we must always be relevant and engaged, and, and that is the difference between a, a think tank and a university where the drivers of what an academic does in a university is so often simply publications, and it doesn't matter whether they're engaged or not or if they're read or not. Um, uh, at the end of every financial year, um, all of us uh, in this think tank space uh, talk to our donors about this is how we've had an impact. This is how we've had a result. This is what our policy has changed, and this is how our policy is changing and influencing the debate. Um, and sometimes you can measure the influence of the debate, as I, as I said, simply by column inches, which we all have a lot of. But other times it's changing the intellectual climate and intellectual milieu, and I'm very influenced by um, many years before the MRC came into existence, what the CIS and IPA was doing, in the 60s and 70s on inflation, on protectionism, on the introduction of free markets into into Australia. And what we're engaged in now um, is something very similar as we participate in a discussion about um, what does liberalism uh, look like? What does freedom look like? How do free markets operate uh, now in a quite different engaged environment? Well, thank, thank you, John. Good to catch up with you. I know your time's precious. And, and uh, thank you very much for the support you give us over the years. I know people often wonder whether we should be competitors, but I, I, we've always agreed, haven't we? We won't be competitors until the, the market for good, solid, liberal ideas is saturated. <laughs> and that's going to be quite a while yet. And, 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 and I hope uh, that is never um, to, to come about, I think, um, we collaborate, we engage, and we've done some wonderful things together. And, of course, it was the MRC uh, that introduced Brendan O'Neill um, to, to the IPA, uh, and the work that the MRC has been doing is so important. I think it had um, a huge impact uh, in, in the federal election. If we look at the debate around climate change and energy, if we look around the tax debate, and if we also look at uh, the, the Labor Party's programs on red tape, on regulation, on prosperity and, and optimism. And what always strikes me, Nick and Fred, about everything the MRC does is the focus on optimism and, and the future prosperity. Australia is the best country in the world, and I hope that all the research and all the analysis that we all undertake um, goes to support that, and I know it does. Mm-hmm. 
Well, thank you, Fred Paul, the Communications Director of the Mentis Research Centre, and the, uh, I think we can call you the water cooler czar. Oh, thank you, <laughs> yes. It's a lot of work, but uh, but uh, we are getting lots of good feedback on it, and uh, I've got to say I'm enjoying doing it. So it, It's um, great to see the readership going up each week. We want, we want more people to read the water cooler, we want more people to listen to the water cooler. We know there's a much bigger... Uh, market for these kind of ideas out there than, than uh, we're presently reaching. So if you can help us, help us by giving us five stars or six or seven or whatever you can get <laughs> your fingers on, on on Apple's iTunes or whatever it is. And um, uh, please share this. That's very important. Share it with people. And, of course, it is the great month for tax-deductible donations. The Menzies Research Centre runs on donations. We're very grateful to the people who support us. Uh, but if you if you would like to lower your tax bill this year and invest in some sound ideas sound arguments then we're always here and uh that's i think pretty much it for the water cooler this week and we'll be uh doing another one soon 